Today's podcast is brought to you by PNC, supporting early education, racial and social justice, and economic development through programming within the communities we serve. episode two of Kaleidoscope, the art and language of inclusion. Last time we did introduce ourselves, but we didn't really tell you who we are or what we do here at UDS. So we're going to go ahead and do that today. My name is Maxwell Warner. I go by Max and I'm the digital marketing specialist here at UDS. So I do a lot of social media work, work with the website, the podcast, photography. I do a lot of fun stuff. And I also have Lisa here with me today. Hello, uh, I'm Lisa Armstrong. I am the Communications and External Relations Director here at United Disability Services. Um, I've been Managing Editor of Kaleidoscope for the last 26 going on 27 years, so I've been here a while. Longer than I've been alive. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Max. So um, Kaleidoscope is really just a, a small part of my job. We are a very small part-time staff that puts out this publication, and we're really proud of it. We put a lot of work into it, and we're really proud of it, but we couldn't do it without people like you, so we really appreciate that. Uh, but the other aspects of my job include um, public relations, media relations, relations, uh, just a, a whole gamut of fun stuff that, that I do here at the agency. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of fun stuff over here in community relations. Um, yeah, we are the fun department, are we? Yes, we uh, are. Yes. We are. Um, so this time we're going to keep it a little more casual than last time, switch it up a little bit. Um, we're going to go over some sampling of works and then into some other things here and there. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy. We're going to start out with um, the sampling of works. So we're going to be starting with our featured essay from issue 85 of Kaleidoscope, which is My Mother's Geranium by Anna Lee Wilson. Toward the end of her life, my mother kept a red geranium in a terracotta pot. Geranium is a common flowering plant with a mistaken identity. When the Dutch brought it from South Africa in the 17th century, horticulturalists mistook it for one that grew wild in Europe. Botany was an imprecise science at the time, but like so many other assumptions about life, that idea stuck, though it was, in fact, a pelargonium. My mother's plant sat alone on her bedroom windowsill in her apartment in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. Each morning before breakfast, a home health aide awoke to my mother's voice over a baby monitor and came straight to her room. She rolled up the window shades toileted and washed my mother, then prepared and fed her breakfast. My mother received five pills, which she washed down with a lukewarm tea, sipped through a straw. Afterwards, the aide worked the control of the electric bed, raising the whole mattress, then the head, so she could help mom smoke the first of six daily cigarettes. When she'd had enough nicotine, Mom mustered all the muscles she could to roll her head towards the window and gaze out. Except for the weather, the distant view to a public housing project in the East Bronx stayed the same, but not the geranium. I visited my mother each Sunday. My first job was checking the geranium. 
It's got three big blossoms, I'd report, and new buds about to burst. Pick off the dead flowers. There aren't any. Yes, she insisted. I see brown. Mom was in her late 70s at the time and resembled a quadriplegic after years of living with a disease that afflicted her and two of her sisters. Doctors in the 1930s examined her oldest sister and mistook her symptoms for muscular dystrophy, a label that stuck for all three women, though the diagnosis only partially fit. Nevertheless, her eyesight was very sharp. The flower is still beautiful, I said. Pinch it off, get rid of it. Her tone of voice made me bristle and threw me back to my childhood when she could still walk but could not bend down. There's lint on the carpet over there, pick it up. Then we won't have to vacuum so often. There's nothing there, I'd say, scanning the aqua broadloom. I see it. Is something wrong with your eyes? Eventually, I found a speck to remove, but I resented doing this. I was young and powerless to stand up to her. Now I was older and understood her need to be in control. Her body had been failing her for more than 50 years, yet I still resented yielding to her wishes, even over a lowly geranium. If you don't pick off the dead ones, new ones won't bloom. Does it need water? Yes, it's bone dry. When this geranium dies, so will I. And since I'm not ready to go, go in the kitchen and get the watering can. I knew where to find the watering can. I'd set up her apartment when I moved my parents back from Florida to the Bronx. I had been fetching it from under the kitchen sink for years. In my teens, when she was partially ambulatory, I had followed her explicit instructions to lift and place each foot as she walked up the wooden steps from the beach. I had made my bed and vacuumed using the exact movements she demanded. Now she was helpless. The balance of power had shifted to me, but it was too late for me to exercise it. During my visits, I checked her mail for bills to pay. I replenished her cash envelope. If need be, I hid a 20 in my deceased father's wardrobe. In case, I said. From a pile on her bedside table, I pulled the public library's latest audiobooks catalog and marked those that interested her for ordering during the week. She couldn't hold the phone, but her aide would dial the number for her and lay the phone on her pillow beside her ear. Anna Lee, don't forget the geranium, she always called out before I left. I resented the reminders. Hadn't I been tending to her needs for years? That she was still alive at 80, 10 years after my father died, was a testament to my abilities. But old habits are knitted into a person. As much as I couldn't let it go, she couldn't stop reminding me. Neither of us could control ourselves. She had been bedbound for so many years and was used to bossing people as if they were her hands. In this way, I continued to tend her geranium and say, I know, Ma. When she demanded, I rubbed the leaves so she could enjoy the scent of geranium oil. I noticed that the soil in the terracotta pot had become rock solid. When I watered the geranium, an oxygen-starved slurry of mud sat on the surface and took an hour to be absorbed. A depression developed around the base of the emaciated stem. 
The nutrient-poor soil had left the geranium so stressed that it now had tiny anemic leaves, yet it never failed to bloom. Like my mother, its limbs had contorted into the shape of its disability. New growth only came from the head. The core was useless except to pull enough water and nutrients from its shriveling stems to push out another crown of flowers. By sheer will, it lived. One Sunday, I brought fertilizer with me and began feeding the geranium. Within one week, the plant was pushing out leaves in an effort to create a new armature. When a fresh limb sprouted, my mother became unhappy. I don't want leaves, I just want flowers. She had so little power in her life that I thought she should at least have power over a plant, so I stopped feeding it. As its nature was to propagate itself, it went back to pushing out flowers. The day my mother died, my husband and I were awakened early by a phone call. All right, so that was My Mother's Geranium by Anna Lee Wilson. Um, something that I really like about this piece is just the importance of such like a simple everyday item to Anna and to Annalie's mother is because you don't really, I don't know, for me, like if I walk into someone's house, like I'm visiting a friend and I see like a plant, I'm not going to think of it as something as important as it was to Annalie's mother. And another part that I really liked in the story was when her mother compares her life to the geraniums. It's a great I, metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, that part of the story really inspires a hope that maybe her mom might overcome the disease. At least when I was reading it, that's what I thought and got out of it. Jimmy thoughts? Most definitely. Um, this is probably one of the pieces in this issue of the magazine that spoke to me the most. Um, I have been a caregiver for elderly parents. Um, both my parents have passed away at this point, but I so understand that need to be in control. And um, sometimes as a caregiver, the resentment that comes with that because they, they very much want you to do things in a certain way and they don't always make sense and you don't always understand them. But if you can put yourself in their place and see life the way they do at the point that they're at, you understand how important that is. Right. I mean, her mother really only had control over this this plant right um and as irritating as it is and i think as a caregiver as a, as a child in particular it's really hard to sort of reverse those roles too so to allow your parents to have as much independence as they can have is yeah. extremely important to them and I, I think as a caregiver you have to recognize that and just let that happen right yeah and i've never really been a caregiver to elderly people before um, but I like the point you brought up of how she really only has control over the red geranium. And it's not something that I have really thought of being somebody who is not elderly or ill or someone who hasn't taken care of an elderly person going through something like that. Now, we also asked each author to submit. This was optional. They could uh, describe why they wrote the piece, what it means to them. Um, so Annalie did choose to do that. So this is why she wrote My Mother's Geranium. After her death, I was compelled to write the story of our visits. I had recognized the connection between my mother and her beloved geranium, which to me was a metaphor for her existence. She may have been profoundly handicapped, yet she was a force that bloomed against all odds. Through the writing, I gained knowledge, compassion, and healing. 
I hope reading my personal essay can help others find ways to heal as well. All right. So thank you, Anna Lee, for sharing your story with us. Next up, we're going to be hearing a poem from issue 84 of Kaleidoscope. It's called Breath of Life by John Dykus. Wednesday morning at 2, lying there awake, a thought came. wonder how long I can hold my breath. So I took a big gulp of air, uh, like there was anything else to do, held it, let it out. 20 seconds. Huh. Tells me nothing, really. wonder if I can do 22 seconds. Took another cavernous breath, held it, released it. 24. Now it's a contest. Bronchi Olympics 2022. Every 30 minutes for the next four hours came another round. Right before I got out of bed, hit a milestone. 65 seconds. After breakfast, timed by a computer clock, I consistently reached the 50s. Turns out my moonlit seconds might have been long. Seconds are not one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Using an actual clock, they're more like one Missy, two Missy. Neighborhood who's counting. I'm not suggesting you attempt breath holding as a sport. There is no peer review here, no clinical trial. I make no claims of cause and effect, but four days of this and my appetite's up. I'm not as sleepy during the day. I seem to be more alert and I have breathers high. I want more. This morning around five, thought I'd try again. Took a deep breath, held, released, 80 seconds. Not bad for an old guy in a wheelchair. One of the main things that I take away from this poem is having a goal, no matter how small, no matter how simple it is, can always make a difference. I really like it when our authors record their pieces because mm -hmm. somehow it becomes more understandable to me. It, it yeah. becomes more relatable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that he has really accomplished that um, with this, this poem. Yeah, for sure. So next up, we're going to be hearing an excerpt from a fiction piece in issue 85 titled Tommy by Kale Bandy. I splash the water, white pillows of suds shattering into little islands in my own ocean. My mother grabs my hands and kisses them, whispering for me to keep still. Her voice flies past my eyes like wind that plucks the seeds from white dandelions in spring. I don't hear her words but I know the way quiet feels. I try to tell my hands to listen to her, but they twist inward and shake like they're withering. They feel like they're going to sink into my arms. The feeling travels up toward my heart, and I'm scared my heart will wither, too. I stop trying to stay still and shake harder to get the feeling out. My weird voice moans and mother shushes me like wind again. She wipes her wrinkled forehead with the back of her wrist and some of her long brown curls get wet. The sponge in her hand drips on her jeans. The blot turns into a dark shape that looks like one of my islands. She has islands too. I reach for the sponge to tell her that we're the same. She reaches toward me instead and wipes my face with the warm, scratchy foam. 
The warmth runs down my cheek and onto my neck where it pauses, like it's deciding which side of me to run down. It chooses my back, and I arch in pleasure and laugh. The little drop is so friendly, and I want to hold it and whisper to it that it is my friend. I reach over my shoulder for the drop, but it's too fast and disappears into my ocean. I've lost it now. I can never tell it that it's my friend, and my eyes fill with rivers of salty drops. Mother sees and hums her lullaby to me. She rubs my back with the sponge, releasing more drops. So many falling into my ocean. Are they okay there? Are they happy? How can I know when I never got the chance to whisper to them? Dry, dry them, I shout. But it's not what I want to say. I want to say, catch them, mother, try to catch them. My tongue doesn't listen to me except when I whisper, but people can't hear my whisper voice. Mother doesn't understand and thinks I want to leave my ocean. She tries to help me out of the water, but I don't want to leave. She lifts me by the armpits, and I fight to stay by kicking my feet. She's not strong enough to lift me by herself anymore. I'm too big, even though I'm smaller than most of the kids at school. Tommy, she sets me back down as gently as she can. But the plastic seafloor is too hard, and my bottom hurts now. Frustrated, she pulls the plug by my feet, and all the drops swirl in a water tornado. I try to put my hand over it, but it spins anyway. Dry them, I scream again, knowing that she won't understand. Tommy, stop. Her voice is red, sinking into the water. It's hot like the sun after I've sat outside for too long. My wrists twist again, and I hug myself the best I can, whispering, stop being bad, you're being bad. Mother doesn't know about the drop, she can't know. My feet kick faster. The ocean peaks over the white walls, I'm sitting in and splashes all over my mother's bare feet. Her rolled up jeans darken in spots that were protected before she stood up. Can't we get through one bath without this happening? Her eyes are closed, voice shaking. She's holding back tears and she thinks I don't understand, but I know how bad I am. I wish I wasn't bad. I wish I could listen all the time. The last of the water drips down the drain and I whisper goodbye. The islands have crashed together, and in their place a little white mountain leans against the side of the tub. I imagine myself climbing the mountain, but the bubbles are popping and I keep falling back to the bottom. Mother's chin sits against her chest and as she holds her hands on her hips. She takes a deep breath and grabs a towel off the door to her right. I stand up slowly, legs shaking as I balance myself on the slippery sea floor. I see myself momentarily in the mirror before she covers my head with a towel and wraps me up tight. I see how my hair is sticking out at different angles, spotted with white bubbles that hadn't been rinsed. My scalp tingles with pain like the air around me is pulling at the misplaced hairs. I paw at my head to stop the pain. It has to be flat. Mother's hands are in the way, and I try to rip them off me as my weird voice yells at her. She fights to dry me as I flail and hit and whisper, I'm sorry, mother. She throws the towel off me angrily and yells back, though I only see the edges of her words. My hands are in my hair, patting it down until I feel the pain in my scalp sink down through my feet into the floor, straight, flat, sane, painless. But mother doesn't know how it hurts. Neither does the man on the phone. He thinks I should look like him. 
he comes once a month with a piece of paper that he gives to mother and pats me on the head. When he tries to talk to me, his voice looks like a thin twig. By the time I see it break, he leaves. Mother always sits at the table and watches him tell me the same stories. You look like your mom, Tommy. Except your eyes. Those are mine. They're mine, I whisper back. I look like me. He doesn't know. He thinks that everyone looks like someone else. He doesn't see. He looks with his eyes too much. People can only be felt. Mother feels like wind in spring. The man feels like dust clouds. Sometimes I can't breathe, and my weird voice makes the dust clouds swirl away. Then Mother sings her lullaby. When Mother calls my name to leave and I don't move, she sits next to me quietly waiting for me to respond. She will wait until I stand up on my own, but after 10 minutes, she walks back into the kitchen with steps that sink into our carpet farther than usual. None of my limbs will react when I tell them to, and I watch as Mother sits back at the table, hunched with her nose hovering over papers and eyes drooping. After a few minutes, I notice her shuffle the papers and sigh as she sits back in the chair. The air around her swirls with each sigh like residue from the dust cloud voice has seeped through the phone and into our kitchen. The memory of the voice clogs the air between Mother and me, and I want to cough. When she sighs again, the particles race toward me, and I close my eyes, unable to escape the leftover words. Would you shut him up? I cough and shut my eyes. Mother looks over at me, alert to the change. When I open my eyes, I can feel my arms and legs again and wave at the air in front of me. The words scatter and I try to focus on the word I want to say. Just one word. I look to Mother and cut my eyes to block everything but her face. Park, I say, and I feel the euphoria of success race around my skull like a hamster on a wheel. I smile so wide my face hurts, but I say park again because I have said what I meant and my weird voice didn't take over for once. I put my hands down and run to mother who laughs like my friends, the birds. I tuck my head under her chin and say park over and over. She doesn't tell me to stop and grabs my hands to lead me out the door. Well, that was a story told from the perspective of a young boy on the autism spectrum who struggles to communicate with his mom. And for me, something that stood out in both this recording and just throughout the whole piece is the vivid language that Kale uses and the imagery that he creates kind of helps me as both a listener and a reader begin to understand a little bit what it may be like to, as somebody who's on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I think that's creates an inter interesting perspective because I, I guess I wouldn't have thought about it that way had there not been such vivid imagery and vocabulary used throughout the piece. So that's something that I really enjoyed about that. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I absolutely love this piece. I, I thought that it was one of those pieces that really sort of tug at your heartstrings. You talked about Tommy and what that must be like to to be somebody with autism and, and trying to communicate. I was looking at it from the perspective of his, of his mom, the frustrations of raising a child that you have trouble communicating mm -hmm. and connecting with, and they both want to so badly. Right. Um, I just, I, I too thought that it, it was just a very vivid description of that relationship, and yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Kale, for sending that in. 
we enjoyed hearing you read an excerpt from your piece. Um, so next up, we're going to be hearing a creative nonfiction piece. It's going to be the whole piece, not just an excerpt, and it's titled Just Counting by Marsha Pridzinski. Spring break began, and my son and I slept late. I planned outings, the zoo, the museum, the park, but decided to spend the day just playing with and observing my son. He was six years old and didn't speak, which made it hard to determine what he knew. The school system had evaluated and declared my son developmentally delayed. I chose to ignore that label because it focused on his limitations. I watched for and encouraged his abilities by trying to do what Dr. McClone of Children's Memorial had suggested. Don't think of Adam in terms of his limitations. Let him lead to show you what he can do. No doctor or speech therapist ever said Adam wouldn't speak. So we waited the way any parent of a growing child would. He went through pre-language milestones that usually led to words. He cooed at two months, the expected age. He laughed a couple months later. He played with different sound syllables, ranging them in patterns that created a sonic phrase he vocalized. For example, I remember him repeating Auba, Auba, Auba again and again, beginning with a soft tone that would build and increase to end in a crescendo resembling a demagogue's rant. Why didn't these developmental steps lead to words? No one could tell us. This spring day was a typical three bowl of oatmeal breakfast. Adam had finished his milk without flinging the cup in his sleight of hand faint that often fooled my groggy with sleep brain and was reaching for books on the kitchen island. Lucky me, I might actually get to clear last night's supper dishes and this morning's breakfast detritus from the counters and sink. I pulled his three new books down. Dad got you these when he worked in Milwaukee last week. I held up colors, then numbers, then alphabet. Your dad was at a class learning about new software for his job. Adam touched and eyed each book before choosing numbers. He hummed in satisfaction. His hand stroked the cover several times as if smoothing out wrinkles before turning the pages. Adam's fine motor skills were not that of the usual six-year-old, but he made up for it with instinctive and amazing compensation strategies, such as his system for turning pages that stuck together. He curled three or four at the corners, so they poked up, then slipped several fingers between the pages. He often enlisted my hand and his father's as tools to reach things. In the future, he will cover both ears with his hands to block the overhead speaker blast at school. He has hyperacuity, a condition that made the PA system's vibrating static voice almost unbearable. The page with a picture of three half-peeled bananas caught Adam's eye, his favorite fruit. He reached for my hand to point at the picture. Banana. I said. He smiled and fisted my index finger to point at the next banana. And another banana. 
He aimed my finger at the third banana on the page and giggled when I yelped, Oh no, three bananas! in a mock surprised tone that tickled him. Mm, he said, pushing my fingers and hands to name the bananas again. This time I counted them. One, two, three, three bananas. Adam sighed. You like bananas, don't you? He repeated, mmm, but this time his tone showed mild irritation. He repeated, mmm, then added an agitated ng to stress his point. Okay, I said, we'll do a recount. One, two, three bananas. He sighed, beamed, and settled down once I started adding up the fruit. Good guess on my part. I paid close attention to Adam's vocal nuances and facial gestures from the time he was an infant. Those indicators often helped me guess what he was trying to say. The counting routine didn't finish with two or three rounds of bananas. Oh no, we went over and over and over the one, two, three banana cycle with Adam showing no signs of boredom. Quite unlike me, who yawned while I tallied. He was intrigued by what we were doing, and I didn't have the heart to stop. My mind wandered. I imagined what other kids were doing while Adam and I counted bananas. His former playdate pals were probably outside playing catch, tag, tetherball, or riding their bikes. We didn't see them much anymore, other than in passing on the street. I imagined three-year-olds in downtown Chicago running pointing at displays in store windows, their parents in tow. I imagined a four-year-old who taught herself to read sitting in a beanbag chair with a book of fairy tales while her five-year-old brother counted pens on his mother's desk. Adam and I sat in the kitchen counting bananas, a learning activity most children did as toddlers. On the following day, we graduated to eight Dalmatians pictured in the book. Adam started using my finger to answer questions about the items. Where's banana three, I might ask. He would grab my finger to single out the third banana. We did three bananas, four turtles, five parrots, then skipped to eight Dalmatians. The dogs stole his attention. We stayed on that page for a long while. A dog was barking outside. A garbage truck chugged down the alleyway. A blue jay screeched at the same time raindrops pattered against the porch windows. The fridge was humming and the tea kettle was whistling to let me know the water was ready for tea. Not one of these sounds distracted Adam. That's very good. What about five? Show me Dalmatian five. Adam's hand jumped my finger over to the page that listed one, two, three, and four, letting it hover while he studied the numbers. Then he flew my hand over to the adjoining page that numbered five, six, seven, eight, and pushed my finger down hard on number five and the fifth Dalmatian. He continued the game with occasional uncertainty when I named numbers over three, but after 10 to 15 minutes more work, he immediately found the numbers I asked for. Once he felt comfortable with all eight numbers, he progressed to nine, then 10. That's when he pushed my hand out of the way so he could point with his own fingers at the animals and numbers as he turned the pages. 
Adam was informing me that he understood what to do. You can end the lesson now, Mom, he might have said if he could have, and your hands are in my way. Using four fingers to press down on the numbers I asked for continued a while longer until it was time for lunch. Later that day, when his father came home from work, I said, Pat, you want to see what Adam and I did today? A smile lit Pat's face as he kissed the top of Adam's head, then settled into a chair next to the high chair. Show me what you and mom did, buddy. Start him off by asking where a numbered animal is. Okay, can you show me the three turtles? Adam turned to the requested page and sighed as he pressed four fingers onto a turtle's back. A few days later, Pat and I sat next to Adam and took turns playing the counting game with him. Show me seven, I said, and Adam pressed his index and middle finger down hard on the picture of the seventh Dalmatian. After a few more rounds, Adam started to complain. Uh, he said, motioning with his hand wildly and pitching forward in his seat. What, Adam? I don't know what you want. He looked back at his book and pushed his fingers down hard on the first Dalmatian. So I said, right, that's one, one Dalmatian dog. But he protested with a loud mmm and an mmm as he pushed his hand against my face. He wanted me to be quiet. When he wanted me to stop singing, he did that. So I took his advice, became silent and observant. Pat and I watched as Adam pressed his fingers on each of the eight dogs in, in consecutive order. His eyes tracked his fingers as he pointed to each numbered picture. Pat said, I wonder if he's saying the numbers inside his head. You know, I bet he is, I said. We both watched in amazement as our non-speaking six-year-old son continued counting the, the Dalmatians in silence. All this occurred during the spring break holiday from school. We did get to the zoo and to Cole's Children's Museum, but the best thing we did together on spring break was the new counting game, which helped me realize more of Adam's abilities. Seeing him press his four small fingers on the animals in his book as he quietly counted was an accomplishment I savored. I absolutely love that piece. I think she brings up such an important point that we need to start ignoring labels because they focus on what somebody can't do. And when you start to ignore those labels, you can learn that people are a lot more capable than what we give them credit for. I think that this piece just goes to show that. I couldn't agree more. Um, I love this piece as well. Um, the fact that she even says that, you know, her doctor says, you know, don't focus on his limitations, but let him lead. And that's exactly what she does throughout the story. And she's allowing him to learn at his own pace and develop at his own pace. And, um, really start to find his abilities. And as a parent, um, to listen to her as, as she allows that to unfold, I think is, is pretty amazing. And I also thought an, another thing that I thought was really beautiful about this piece too, is the, um, the language she develops with her son, mm -hmm. uh, to be able to communicate and understand him. So just a, another great piece in this issue, I think. 
So next up, we're going to take a bit of a break from the sampling of works and go into our interview with Just Imagine Art Gallery. Um, before we do that, I do just have to thank Director of Development Evelyn Burkhart for sending us the news article from the Canton Rep highlighting the important work that this art gallery does. It's super unique, and I honestly haven't heard anything like it before. So I'm um, really excited to be with them here today. And without further ado, let's get into the interview. Today, we have marketing manager Rachel Doty joining us from the Just Imagine Art Gallery located in downtown Canton, Ohio. Just Imagine empowers individuals with developmental disabilities to unlock the creative parts of themselves and the artists there create art simply because they love Rachel, it. thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. Excellent. So tell me a little bit more about Just Imagine, how you got started. Why do people come here? Why do they choose this as a place to, to do their art? So Just Imagine is a unique art program run by the Workshops Inc. It began in the early 1970s um, under the name of the Gift Gallery. And we operated under that name within Stark County up until around 2015 when we did a little bit of rebranding. Um, we came down to the art district in downtown Canton and we became Just Imagine. Um, and since then we've just continued to blossom and being a part of this incredible art district has unlocked so many opportunities for the artists that we serve here. Um, and giving them just unlimited access to other artists within our community and just opportunities to experience new mediums, experience new opportunities in the art world and just grow as artists. That's amazing. So how many artists do you have here? So our numbers change over time. Um, right now we have about 12 artists that call Just Imagine home. Um, they come in here every day, Monday through Friday. This is their job. Mm -hmm. So they come in, they're welcome to utilize any medium they want. They can create anything they want. And then they have the opportunity to display and sell in our gallery to earn their income. And how many volunteers do you have? Um, we don't have ongoing volunteers, but we certainly have people from the community that volunteer for different projects. Okay. So for example, we recently had a um, exhibit, our yarn explosion, and we had about 30 different volunteers for that. Wow. Um, yeah, that really caught my attention when I was reading the article in the Canton newspaper about the art explosion. I can't knit to save my life. So I was pretty impressed. It was so detailed and just a very cool display out there. I see that's right across the street from you. So what do you personally like most about working for Just Imagine? I like everything. <laughs> um, so I grew up going to the gift garden for Christmas gifts, for birthday gifts, for friends and family members. Um, and then as I, you know, got older and had that opportunity after college to find a job, I saw that this opening was available and it just seemed like coming home for me. I have connections with my family members that have disabilities. And so for me, it was very personal coming here. Um, but then once I got here, I realized there was so much more. The things that are happening in this gallery are unique. It's one of a kind. You're not gonna find it anywhere else. The opportunities provided to people to express themselves and explore interests that they have, it's just beyond anything I ever imagined. So it means the world to me to work here and to be a part of our folk story. So are you artistic yourself? Um, limitedly, <laughs> <laughs> um, not nearly as artistic as our friends here 
but um, I dabble a little bit in things like photography and those types of things. But when it comes to painting or knitting or anything like that, I'm not too great. <laughs> they teach me something every single day. <laughs> well, I can certainly see why, you know, this, this program is attractive for you and to work here. I know what, what Kaleidoscope does to have the opportunity to show the abilities that people just, have, just amazing. And it's, it's good to see that somebody is supporting it. Um, and I think it's gotten more popular throughout the years as well within the art community. Anyone, people of all abilities can contribute. And as we see here today, it's just, it's amazing stuff. It's amazing stuff. It, it truly is. And we are so accepted and embraced, not only by our art community here, but as the community as a whole, um, we have customers coming in constantly. They've heard about it from a friend. They've heard about it from a relative and they just want to check us out because they've never heard of anything like this. And they come in, they hear our story and they become a repeat customer because they know that they're supporting folks who are following their passion. They're pursuing their dreams, just like we would. Um, and it's just become this incredible thing. So I see that you have one of your artists with us here today. What do you like most about Just Imagine? Um, I've been here since about 2020. So I like doing um, different types of art. I'm a crafty person. So anything that is art or crafty related, it just sparks my interest. Okay. Anything in particular? Do you have a favorite medium that you work in? Um, well, I do knitting and crocheting. I've crocheted since the age of 17. And I've knitted since about early 20s to mid 20s. So what does working here mean to you? Um, it, it's like I just escape from reality when I do all my artwork. And then I have a job outside of here. The interesting thing about Amber's job outside of here is Amber, as you may have seen, she is fantastic at customer service. So she helps us here. Um, she's grown those skills, answering phones, running the register, all of those different things that it takes to run a business. Um, and a couple months, it's been three months now. Yeah, three months. Three months. Amber went down to her local Goodwill and applied for a cashier position, taking those skills that she's learned here. And she got the position and she's just doing outstanding at the Goodwill. Do you wanna talk a little bit about those things that you do in your job every day? Um, like Rachel said, I'm in the cashier area of Goodwill. I also do the sales floor, like stocking the racks and things like that. And I make sure things are nice and neat and tidy for the next day. That's, that's awesome. So those are all really great skills to have and yes. you can take those with you wherever you go. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the Yarn Explosion Project and how that got started. Yeah, so our Yarn Explosion Project um, kind of got started because one of our artists named Phyllis is just in love with knitting. She has knitted for years. She primarily has knitted scarves um, and this is 20 years plus of knitting um, and people have come into our gallery over the years just seeking out these scarves. She's become known for this piece. And we were really looking for a way to kind of expose her artwork more to our community. And we had heard about yarn bombings, yarn explosions going around the world. I mean, it really seemed like something neat and not something we'd seen done here locally. 
So we sat down with Phyllis, we kind of explained what it was and asked her what her interest level would be. Um, she was very interested. And so we set to work getting permits, reaching out and finding volunteers that may be interested in coming in and helping us. Um, because Amber here, as she mentioned, does some crocheting and we had Phyllis, but the other artists, they had interest in it, but we needed to do some education on it to help them jumpstart that activity. So we brought in volunteers. I mentioned we had about 30 volunteers from all across Stark County who have spent time coming in and teaching our artists, working alongside them to get their pieces going. They've contributed pieces as well, just really to make this entire thing a collaborative effort between folks with disabilities and folks from the community, just coming together to knit two blocks worth of um, items. It's just been amazing to see what it's blossomed into for us. How long did this project take? It took about three months um, to get all of the pieces done. And in total, it's just over 400 pieces. Holy cow. That's a, that's <laughs> a lot of knitting going on here. <laughs> um, if somebody wants to get involved with Just Imagine, who do they contact? So they can contact me. Um, my email address is marketing at choosetwi.com or my phone number is 330-479-3399. Okay, great. Well, I wanna thank you both for joining us today um, and taking, taking the time just to educate our community about how important these projects are to people, how they increase inclusion in the community and just what a great asset you are. Um, lots of beautiful artwork here and I would definitely encourage people to come down and take a look. Thank you so much. Thank and thank you. you for giving us the opportunity to share our story. Absolutely. Thank you. It's, it is just amazing. Uh, the art that they turn out there, the knitting project was incredible. After we got done with the interview, we went on a little tour and, and looked at some of these pieces. There was a, a bicycle that had been, you know, completely encased like in every single part of the bicycle, like not just the wheels and the seat or like it was the whole thing, thing. like every little detail you could think of. Yeah. Covered. And not, and not small pieces either. There were some pretty mm. large pieces. Yeah, like the that, ladybug, yes. a lady, huge ladybug. Um, the installation I believe is taken down now, but we're going to have some photos up on our website under our news portion that you guys can go check out. Another thing that I really enjoyed while we were visiting was those pet portraits. Yes, the pet portraits were amazing. Insane, like insanely accurate. It's truly amazing work they have there. And like like Rachel said in the interview, there you can't find it anywhere else. Yeah, it's well it's well worth the visit, and and I think it's really enlightening as well. Well, now on to topic four, where we'll just continue sampling some works from Kaleidoscope. Um, so first up, we have Laura's Island by Evelyn Arvey. It's from issue 85, and it is a fiction piece. I took very good care of my husband. In a few minutes, I would help him to bed, which was quite an undertaking. I'd grip his gate belt and help him from his easy chair and into his wheelchair. I'd help him from the wheelchair to the stair lift and then to his upstairs wheelchair. I'd help him relieve himself. I'd make sure he took his handful of pills. I'd lift his legs onto our bed. Then I'd gently manipulate them, stretching his tight as piano wire hamstrings while trying not to hurt him. Then I'd massage the knots out of his shoulders, his arms, his legs. I'd do all of that and more. 
but not quite yet. I wanted to do something first. I went up to our room and taped the picture to the wall beside the bed. I just want something pretty to look at, is what I would have told Mitch if he'd asked me what I was doing. I want to fall asleep, pretending I'm there on that island, not here. On the other hand, maybe it was better if he didn't ask me what I was doing. There were things Mitch didn't need to know. I was so very tired. I was so very unhappy. Worse, I'd begun to realize I didn't like my life anymore, and I felt guilty for even thinking that. It wasn't Mitch's fault that his disease had made him dependent on me. My life revolved around Mitch's illness. It had to. I was his caregiver. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't. I sighed. The picture I'd just taped to the wall wasn't straight. The right corner hung low. I unstuck it, bent the paper forward to put another piece of tape on the back, and then I saw it. A handwritten note on the top right corner. Laura asked for it three times and she was heard. What was this? A message scrawled in felt chip marker on the back of my beautiful island? This might be a good place to mention my name, Laura Wilson. My name is Laura. I stared at the picture of the island when I woke up the next morning, careful not to squirm, because as soon as I moved, my day belonged to Mitch. I lay on my side, studying the image I'd taped to the wall. I counted the trees, 18 in the foreground, many more in the background. I took note of every color in the lagoon, the luscious blues, the impossible greens, the succulent turquoises. Such a beautiful place. If I were there, I would spend an entire day doing only what I wanted. How novel that would be to do nothing at all. How long had it been since my time had been my own? I want to go there to that island, I thought, yawning, still half asleep, eyes closing on their own. I really, really want to go there. I want to go to that island so bad. And then I did. When I opened my eyes, everything was different. My bedroom was gone. The hallway was gone. The window looking out on the Douglas fir was gone. I reeled out of bed, yanking the covers with me. Mitch! Mitch! I shrieked. But he didn't answer because he was gone too. The island! I thought, I'm on the island. This isn't possible. I fell back to sit on the edge of the bed, clumps of sheets still gripped in my fists. My bed, minus my husband, was the only thing that had followed me to this place. I sat there, taking in my new surroundings, reminding myself to breathe. The air smelled exactly as I imagined it would, of sunshine, of ocean, of warm, growing things. I reached out and I ran my fingertips over the woven matting that now covered the wall near the bed. The bumpy, knobby texture and soft rat-tat-tat of my fingernails 
convinced me more than anything that something marvelous had just happened, except maybe it hadn't. It all seemed so very real, but what if it wasn't? I'd been desperately wishing for my dismal reality to be replaced by something better, something tropical, something where multiple sclerosis wouldn't be a part of my life. So maybe I was hallucinating. It all looked so real, but maybe I'd tumbled into a powerful daydream. I stared out of the window, taking in glimpses of glimmering ocean through the trees, following flickers of brightly colored birds as they darted here and there, watching a green gecko with yellow toes scramble up a palm tree, then down, then up again. No daydream included geckos clambering in palm trees or wall coverings that left tiny bits of rattan under the fingernails or the salty, tangy smell of the ocean. This was no daydream. This was real. I looked around. What had bent my bedroom was now a one-room light-filled cabin. My bed and a small bathroom with a half-open door were at one end, a kitchen and eating area in the middle, and a sitting area opening onto a covered lanai at the far end. Screened windows on all sides let in warm breezes and golden light. In the same place where I taped the picture of the island was an image of my own home. I leaned forward. Written in the sky was another message. Welcome, tell no one. This place is for you alone. In smaller writing underneath, Laura, you already know the way home. I stared at the picture twisting the bedsheets in my hands. The picture was wrong. I didn't know the way home. I looked away, anywhere but at the wall, and noticed things about the room I hadn't seen before. A coffee maker, a pair of yellow flip-flops beside the door. Well, maybe I do know the way home. I took a deep breath and sat up straighter. I got here by saying I wanted to be on the island. Maybe I just say I want to go home three times. I gazed at the picture, knowing I was right. Okay, I can do that. Only, only I can't tell Mitch where I've been. Which made me gasp. Mitch! I'd all forgotten about him. Was, was he okay? What kind of caregiver was I? Was Mitch lying in a broken heap on the floor because I'd stolen the bed out from under him? I had to go back home. I'd been on the island for about five minutes. Anything could have happened in those five minutes. I put my hands flat on my knees and stared at the image of my house. I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. And I went home. All right, that was Laura's Island by Evelyn Arby. Something I really love about this piece is just the creativity in it. It's such a fun story. And something that I really liked about her recording specifically is how theatrical she was. It really like roped me in. Yeah, she was very animated. Yeah, and I absolutely, I love that because it really makes you feel like you're like part of the story almost. Well, and as we talked about before, I, the stories of caregivers um, strike a chord with me uh, my experience with caregiving is is still very fresh and very 
recent. And, and I understand that. I mean, I could picture laying there trying to come up with a scenario where you can escape for a while. I understand sort of those feelings of guilt that come with that. But as a caregiver, you should never feel guilty about taking some time for yourself because you need that. You need to come back refreshed and rejuvenated so that you can be the best caregiver you can be. So um, although this is a fiction piece, um, for me, there's a, there's a lot of reality that's reflected in here. So it's, it's another great piece in this magazine. Absolutely. I encourage you all to go read it in its totality because that was only just a part of it. So yep. if you read the full thing, you really get the full scoop. So next up, we're going to be hearing a creative nonfiction excerpt from Naked Facebook Friday by Nancy Deo. And it's also an issue 85. Majority of these were from issue 85. 85. There was just one from 84. So all the pieces from here on out are from 85. Enjoy. Dr. Edsel peeks her head into the open doorway of the waiting room. Nancy, Chris, great to see you both. I have been under a psychiatrist's care before, but this time the experience is not overshadowed by a physical health crisis. 15 years prior, a serious spine injury left me bedridden for a decade, recovering from failed surgeries, dependent on opioids, and taking an antipsychotic before finally weaning myself to a full recovery. For reasons I do not yet understand, my husband believes I am now in a crisis of a different sort. This is my third session with Dr. Edsel. Chris is joining me for this visit. He is keenly aware of my ability to seem perfectly healthy when I'm not, a situation we encountered more than once during my rocky recovery. We are here to discuss increasing the dosage of Abilify which Dr. Edsel restarted after my first session. This increase is an adjustment Chris desperately wants, and I do not. I feel fine. Also, I want to hang on to the exuberant feeling I'm just discovering, that I am connected to the universe. Nancy, Dr. Edsel begins, how have you been feeling? My response is instantaneous and unfiltered. Great, I am really great. Chris gives me a penetrating look. It feels like he's policing me. His vigilance makes me edgy. Actually, I say, making myself repeat the words that Chris and I negotiated earlier, it's been a hard few weeks for Chris and me. In retrospect, the first sign that something was amiss came in the form of an automated message from Facebook. The message popped up as I raced to friend hundreds of new people, literally as fast as my fingers could type. Slow down, you're going too fast. We think you may not be real. Whatever, I thought. I was obsessed with my goal, to get to 5,000 friends by the end of the day. A Friday, in fact. I had been a light Facebook user for years and mostly a voyeur. But during my decade-long convalescence, using social media had become one way to keep in touch with high school classmates, and after that, my younger grad school friends, who grew up with social media, sharing everything about their lives in a way that made me feel less lonely. Something, however, had shifted inside me that morning as I stayed logged on all day, compulsively friending people. I knew this sort of thing happened, 
was even programmed into a social media business built on making connections and monetizing the data that followed. But the more friends I amassed, the more I felt I needed. I had started that morning with 350 friends and was now on the verge of a miraculous feat. 4,500 friends, which I knew had to be a world record. The acceptances came fast and furious. Friends of friends of friends of friends from around the world, all wanting to be my friend. Then an explosion of likes and welcoming messages. A rush of well-being coursed through my body. A feeling of floating on a higher plane. Suddenly I understood. Facebook was about more than connecting people. It was about global love. I alone had discovered the secret of social media. I glanced down at my watch. It was 3.30 p.m. Yikes. I promised Chris that I would be packed, showered, and ready to go at 4 p.m. After a tumultuous week at work, my last, I would later learn, and no sleep, Chris had made reservations for us to spend the weekend decompressing out of town. And yet I was so close to my goal, I had to finish. And I could be ready in time if I really hustled. Nancy, Dr. Edsel asks, after we settle into her black leather chairs, why was Chris surprised to find you naked in your own bedroom? Part of me is relieved that this is her question rather than digging into my admittedly peculiar Facebook activity, which I do not yet see as connected. Chris jumps in before I can respond. Nancy, he says with some exasperation, is uncomfortable being naked even in her own presence, much less in mine. This much is true. I've always been modest, even self-conscious to the core. I put on a towel before I step out of the shower. I get dressed without looking in the mirror. As Chris talks, I can feel my face getting hot. So I stretch the truth to defend myself. I had just gotten out of the shower, I say quietly, and was sending a quick email before I got dressed. Why did Chris and Dr. Edsel need to know that I'd been naked all day? The last thing I want is more Abilify. I'm already lamenting the start of its dampening effect on my mind and body, not to mention the weight gain, a side effect that the recovering anorexic in me hates almost as much as the brain fog. Come on, girl, Chris says emphatically, using his most heartfelt nickname for me which feels like a trick. In 33 years of marriage, I've never seen you work naked. I squirm in my chair, not sure it is wise to let him have the last word. Dr. Edsel looks calmly at us both. I pray she's on my side, but I know how convincing Chris can be when he makes an argument. I understand that things have been strained between you two, she begins. Chris, is there anything else you wanted to share? Chris always comes to a meeting prepared, as do I, but I am unprepared for the barrage that follows. I cringe as he describes the additional shifts in my behavior, the weird food combinations I now eat, peanut butter and sriracha and crackers was my go-to snack. The fact that I've changed all the car radio stations from soft rock to technopop Goodbye, K-Fog. Hello, the now defunct wild. The use of hair conditioner on my body instead of soap. 
I was convinced the conditioner would moisturize my dehydrated body. The Amazon charges for downloading hundreds of eBooks, including Love the One You're With and Good in Bed onto my Kindle, and the lack of filter between my brain and mouth. I told a black cashier that I could tame her wiry hair. In a final psychiatric clincher, the words grandiose, pressured speech, oversharing, and argumentative shoot out of him in rapid fire. Writing upside down and back to front in a script only I could decipher was the best way to keep the book I was writing private. While Chris had never read my journal without permission, I did feel exposed to his increasing scrutiny of my everyday behaviors and took what felt like justifiably evasive actions. His various confiscations were not going to slow me down, and he certainly didn't get to edit my freaking book. So I filled up one journal and then another, consumed by the need to get my story out. Chris started sleeping in the guest bedroom, his choice, not mine. He said he no longer knew who I was. For the first time in 33 years of marriage, we argued long and hard. We said hateful things that we regretted. I told him that he was controlling. He said I needed to be managed. As our relationship faltered, I figured the less he knew about any of my activities, the better. I was determined to live a bigger life. I was executing the grand plan. Shortly before my third visit to Dr. Edsel, I was certain Chris was gonna leave me. And to be honest, I could see a path without him. If Chris could not understand what I now understood about how the world worked and my place at the top of it, why let him slow me down? Chris slammed the bedroom door one night after a particularly nasty exchange. It stung, but I was resolute. The silence that hung in the air loomed as large as the distance between us. For the first time, I understood how once happy couples ended up divorced. After a few minutes, I heard a light knock on the door. Now, before we get into our opinions, thoughts about the piece, I do want to listen to the why real quick. I've wanted to write this essay since I experienced my first manic episode back in 2017. But it took me several years to make sense of what had happened and then time after that to have the courage to put pen to paper and then put it out into the world. My hope is by sharing this essay that I do my part to help destigmatize mental illness. One day, if enough of us raise our voices, I believe that mental illness will be viewed with the same lack of judgment as physical disabilities. Also, I hope that somebody reading this essay will see themselves or someone they love in my words and benefit from what I've learned. Wow, this really is um, a kind of a heavy topic, actually, and the magazine has addressed this before. I think that we don't always give enough attention to mental health, and this is a perfect fit for Kaleidoscope because it does um, go a long way in helping to change perception. Yeah, I think it. Um, I think it's interesting the way it sheds a light onto somebody who's going through a manic episode because you don't exactly always get to see like mm-hmm. what they're thinking you just see what they're doing but i think this piece really kind of puts you in her shoes and helps you gain more understanding of what it's like to be in that state state of mind so absolutely all right next up we are going to hear a poem titled they came apart by dina s tobin 
I left them behind, my black high-heeled shoes. Well-worn, they had served their purpose, walking me through parties, graduations, and weddings. But in the end, they came apart. While I stood at my sister's wedding, waiting to dance, my shoes gave up the ghost. The bottoms peeled away, leaving me to trip over my own feet like a clumsy toddler wearing her mom's shoes. I had to sit, unable to walk. Somehow ironic, given the bride shared the same fate, but because of illness, not for a worn out shoe. I left the shoes behind in Seattle, near the trash, but not in it, thinking some shoe fairy might rescue them and see them reborn. Let's listen to the why real quick. I read this poem after my sister Jessie's wedding to Barry in October 2019. It was a joyous day. At the time, Jessie was a few years into her ALS diagnosis. Her symptoms were worsening. She was having trouble walking and standing without assistance and trouble communicating. Now, her situation has worsened. She's in the final phase of this horrible disease. ALS robs you of your ability to move your muscles until even breathing is problematic. There's no cure yet. If you can, if this story moved you, please contribute to the ALS Foundation or its local chapters. Thank you for listening. I think it's very heartfelt and touching and just to use shoes as sort of an analogy to ALS is something really creative, I think. So next up, we are going to hear Brianna's story by Kiri Peterson. It's a creative nonfiction piece. During a routine surgical procedure, my oxygen was cut off for an unknown period of time. I suffered an acquired brain injury, or ABI, the first night, the doctors warned my husband and parents that if I did awaken, I would have the mentality of a five-year-old. When I walked into the hospital, I was five feet nine inches and weighed 130 pounds. I was a musician, mother, and teacher. When I emerged from an eight-week coma, I weighed 90 pounds. I couldn't see or move. My arms and legs spasmed endlessly. The doctors were wrong about one thing, though. When I woke up, I didn't have the mentality of a five-year-old. I lacked the capacities of my three-year-old son. In the final weeks of the coma, I was somewhat aware of what was going on around me. My mother or husband would say something and in my mind, I would answer. I could not understand why they didn't respond. I didn't know how to move the words from my brain to my mouth. It was as if the switch that governs speech was broken. In contrast, my hearing was exaggerated, as if my nerves resi resided outside my body, sounds pounded on me. Because my startle response was also damaged, if someone slammed my hospital room door, I jumped out of my skin. 
As the coma continued to lighten, my senses grew even more intense. The room smelled brisk and pink, diluted blood scrubbed with antiseptic. It tasted lonely and rancid. When my husband Dale and my son Sam visited, the air seemed to shift. The nurses said I smiled and my blood pressure went up a few points and that when they left, I cried. When I first returned to actual consciousness, I thought I'd been hit by a truck or that I'd fallen over a cliff. My fingers and hands felt as if they were tied closed and pain rotated through my body. During the coma, I was fed through a stomach tube. When it was removed, I no longer knew how to swallow. I had to learn everything from scratch. The neurologist told the nurses to place a radio near my head. The music calmed me, they said. Later, it seemed as if the NPR hosts were my friends. I knew their names and voices and what time each came on. I learned about everything from plankton and kayaks to war and space travel. Well, in a coma, Dale sat by my bed, begging me to wake up. He took leave from his job and spent hours holding my hand and talking to me. He thought I would yawn and stretch and look around, the perfect princess he convinced himself I'd been before. In the first week, doctors used the term persistent vegetative state. At that point, Dale refused to believe them. He would use his considerable will to awaken me. When I first woke up, Dale was beside himself with joy. I told you, he told the staff. Like Dale, I also believed I would fully recover. All I had to do was apply myself to speech, physical, and occupational therapy, and Dale and Sam and I would resume our previous lives. Only gradu gradually did we face the reality that recovery is a slow and tedious slog. When this dawned on Dale, he was stunned. You're not the woman I married, he said. After I was released to go home, Dale refused to sleep in the same room as I did. That was the lowest place of my life. Knowledge of how damaged I was came to me in bits. I asked Dale and my mother to read me medical reports and witness testimony, but they refused. They thought the information would hurt me Later, my friend Huda read me everything. She respected my right to know. When I was unconscious, I had so many guests, the nurses rationed visits. The first night, my parents, husband and son were each allowed one minute to say goodbye. Because Huda worked at the hospital, she visited me on her own. After I emerged from the coma, Visits trickled off. 
in part because Dr. Lee wanted my energy directed toward rehabilitation. The rehab team was more accustomed to working with patients recovering from heart attacks or strokes. At 27, I was a third the age of most patients in rehab. The therapists were my buddies and cheerleaders. These unsung heroes urged me along. All around me, I would hear laughter and weeping, and I contributed my share. During my eight months in the hospital and as an outpatient afterwards, rehab was where the laying on of hands remained sacred and essential. Eight months after my surgery, I was discharged to Dale's care. I could not walk. I could barely stand. She's more than a survivor, Dr. Lee said at my discharge meeting. It wouldn't surprise me if she fully recovered. While I was in the coma, Huda visited me every day on her breaks. In the final part of the coma, I sensed when it was daylight and when the light disappeared, I knew it was night. The day I woke up, Huda was wearing a bright red jacket I'd always loved. Although I couldn't see, I sensed her presence. Huda said, get up, I'm bored sitting around here, let's go out. She says I turned in her direction. My eyes felt as if salt had been poured into them and Huda asked the nurse for drops. My lips were dry and she rubbed in salve. Huda went out to the nurse's station. Brianna's back, she said. Wow, that piece, I'm gonna be honest, for me is a bit horrifying. Like just the thought of being in a coma, she kind of seemed trapped inside her own body, but she heard everything that was going on around her. She could almost feel that the air in the room just being immobilized like that, but still there. It's, it's just insane to think that people go through that probably on a daily basis. There's people in comas all over the world. And it's just crazy to think about. Part of coming out of it was scary. You always see on TV when characters break out of a coma, they're all Ooh, back to normal. I'm, I'm back, back to life. Here I am. But that's, I mean, as this story shows, it's not how it is. I mean, you have to go through a lot of stuff to, to learn how to function the way you did before. You know, but I think too that it's uh, it really is a story of hope. That when things seem at their darkest, there is there is always hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I totally agree. So next up, we're just going to discuss um, a group that we had that came and visited UDS last month. It's a pretty interesting opportunity. The Department of State offers a program, and it allows foreign leaders to come and spend time in the United States, cultivating lasting relationships with their American counterparts. So last month, we had a delegation from Kyrgyzstan um, that came and toured UDS. They were here on the topic of disability rights and Global Ties, Akron, set up the group tour with UDS. Yes. United Disability Services has been involved in these tours for quite some time, probably at least 10 years, if not more. Um, this was a really interesting group. And and for as long as I've been here at UDS, I learned something new every day. And I, I did learn an awful lot from this group while they were here. Um, you know, and some of it was just sad. We had the opportunity to sit down with a couple of these people and they were just so excited to be here. 
um, one of the gentlemen said to be able to access an accessible restroom whenever he needed one, just the accessibility of transportation. And I was actually on one of our elevators with one of the translators and he was talking to me and he said, you know, sometimes he said, I think that Americans don't really appreciate um, everything they have in their country, especially when it comes to people with disabilities. And of course, we talk all the time about, you know, gee, we have such a long way to go and and we have so many more things to do and so much more pro- progress to make. But um, they really put it into a different perspective for me that, you know, we, we're at least allowed to openly talk about issues of disability in our country. They're not, yeah. um, which so is just crazy. To, it's crazy to think about. Exactly. And um, you know, we we value and appreciate everybody that we serve here at United Disability Services, and it's just not the case in their country. And, you know, my hope is that someday through these visits, we can develop more of an understanding to help people throughout the world have better opportunity. But it, like I said, it was just really eye-opening, and um, it was a really good experience. I also thought we could take some time to talk about our featured artist from Issue 85 of Kaleidoscope. Um, So if you haven't gotten a chance to read through this issue of the magazine yet, one of our employees here at UDS, Sandy Palmer, wrote up a story about the artist. Her name is Alana Sienna Tillman, Um, and her work is just absolutely phenomenal. Like the colors you see throughout the magazine are so vibrant, and I really like the watercolor style that she has. My favorite has to be the cover. (laughs) The cow on the cover is just so darn cute. I actually printed out a picture of it and have it hanging next to my desk just so I can see the little cow looking at me every day. We always select our pieces, be it um, written work or our artists, um, based on merit and, and not disability. Um, you know, I, I have no artistic ability at all. So I, I have a great appreciation um, for this art, this artist. Um, it's, it's beautiful work. There's another piece in here. It is a pretzel that says salty on it, which before we started this, Max was talking about the fact that that's the way he is on a Monday morning. I can attest to that. Um, (laughs) But again, it's, it's, um, you know, she's, she has some very kind of whimsical pieces, um, Mm -hmm. some very pretty pieces of art. So we would encourage you just to go on to our website. If you have the opportunity, download a copy of the magazine so that you can take a look and see what she has to offer. Yeah, absolutely. Max, does she have a, does she have a website? Yes. So it's her first and last name.com. So it's Alana Sienna, or excuse me, first and middle name, unless that's her first last name. And then Tillman is a second last name. Sorry. Um, <laughs> A-L-A-N-A. Yep. And then C-I-E-N-A. Dot com. Yep. Okay. Um, so you can check out her work there. And then she also has an Instagram. Um, it's Art Excur- Excursion. So it's A-R-T-X-C-U-R-S-I-O-N. I also encourage you to go look at her work there because she has some beautiful posts up on Instagram as well. Excellent. So that brings us to our last topic in which we'll just be finishing up the sampling of works from our recent issues of Kaleidoscope. Um, So to start off, we'll be hearing a fiction piece called The Silence Between Us by Christina Hartman. And it's actually read by UDS staff member Sandy Palmer. She's in our department and she did an awesome job with this. So I hope you enjoy. It was New Year's Eve, 1981, when I understood that everything had changed. 
Charlie and I crowded around the television in our living room, which had been turned low so our three-year-old Kathleen could sleep. Charlie put his arm around me and raised his glass. It'll be a great year, Julia, for all of us. We clinked our glasses, wanting the words to come true. The muted countdown began as Dick Clark's face bobbed merrily across the screen. The glittery ball dropped, and we drank to new beginnings in contented silence. Loud pops sounded outside, and I almost dropped my drink. A hoarse cry followed. 1982, long live Ronald Reagan! Charlie swore. It's that idiot down the street with his firecrackers. I'll set him straight. Go check on Kath. But I was already on my way, the sparkling wine's sharp carbonation still on my tongue. The house had thin walls, and Kathleen needed her rest after spending over a month in and out of the hospital. Rapidly advancing meningitis, that was what the doctors called it. I called it hell, standing by as doctors and nurses fought to cool my daughter's fever. I opened the door, expecting a scowling toddler on the verge of a tantrum. What I found was my daughter fast asleep. The nightlight illuminated her serene but sallow face, her thick eyelashes resting on her cheeks. It was as if the firecrackers had never happened. I whispered her name. No movement. I spoke louder and stepped forward. Her eyelids fluttered open, giving me my disgruntled toddler. I wondered if I had imagined it all. When I told Charlie what happened, he replied in his low and soothing voice, the doctor said something about temporary side effects. Let's wait and see. I watched her for weeks afterward, waiting for traces of the old Kathleen, signs of the girl who snuck into my makeup drawer and turned her face into an abstract painting of eyeshadow and lipstick, the girl who hurled herself at me when I came home from the law firm. That girl never came. The new Kathleen quietly watched the world with turtle eyes and clutched the walls as if everything had gone topsy-turvy. When Kathleen was stacking blocks one evening, I clapped my hands and called her name. Several times, louder each time. As my calls crescendoed, she pulled out a block and sent the tower tumbling all over the floor. She never turned around. I called the doctor the next morning. It took weeks to schedule an appointment with the audiologist and I took off yet more time from work. Ms. Yates, a young woman in a shapeless suit, met us at reception. Kathleen Lambert, meningitis, possible hearing loss, she said, not looking up from her papers. The doctor said it was temporary, Charlie said. It can be permanent, she replied, and Charlie blinked. Kathleen buried her face into my leg as we stood in the waiting room, her fingers digging into my thigh. This place looked and smelled like the hospital, with its fluorescent glare and disinfectant stink. Ms. Yates led us into the dimly lit sound booth and instructed us to keep Kathleen occupied. Kathleen knew something was wrong and nudged her Barbies half-heartedly. Ms. Yates began to shake a rattle. The jingling filled the small space. Kathleen didn't look up. Another, louder this time. Kathleen tilted her head but didn't turn. Deep creases bracketed Ms. Yates' mouth. We'll know for sure soon, Ms. Yates said. You'll hear some sounds. Please don't react. I bent down for the game that was no game at all. 
No amount of smiles and Barbie waving got Kathleen to play with me. Charlie sat down and performed his magic. Tweaked Kathleen's nose, which made her relax. I stood to let them play and braced myself for the real test. Ms. Yates appeared as a faceless silhouette in the tinted window to the adjoining room. The noise began. The speakers emitted thin whistles and I forced myself to stay still. Bursts of atonal sounds continued, descending in pitch until I could think of nothing else. I looked at Kathleen. She was walking her Barbie, untouched by the racket. It was only then that I understood sound's expansiveness. It filled every nook and cranny of our lives like a gas in a vessel. It followed us everywhere, from the alarm clock's blare in the morning to the buzz of traffic on the way to work to the lights clicking off at night. It carried words from mouth to ear. It was inescapable, inexorable, and all-consuming, except if you couldn't hear it. What happened if you were barricaded from something so elemental? The notes continued in their mad descent and it finally happened. Kathleen turned to me, her eyes wide and questioning. She had heard something. The world of sound wasn't entirely beyond her. When the test came to its merciful end, Ms. Yates entered with a grim look. Your daughter failed the hearing test. She has approximately 60 to 80 decibel hearing loss, which is in the severe range. Even though I had known the words were coming, my mind went blank, empty, nothing. Sh she's deaf, Charlie said. I said the first thing that came to mind, there must be something we can do. Thanks so much for reading that for us, Sandy. I greatly appreciate it. I think you did a wonderful job reading that piece. You bring a really unique perspective and I would just love to hear your thoughts on the piece and about your experiences. I grew up with deaf parents. My dad went to Ohio School for the Deaf where he learned American Sign Language. My mom went to an oral school where they didn't sign and um, she didn't learn sign language even though she had two siblings who were also deaf. She didn't learn sign language until she met my dad. Wow. And then he taught her how to sign and the rest is history. So that sort of reminded me of the character Kathleen in the story, who once she learns a little bit about deaf culture and sign language, she completely embraces it. And that reminds me of my mom. Now, did you learn sign language just by picking it up by watching your parents or did you... Like, that is the most frequently asked question. I bet. I bet. <laughs> I don't remember learning how to sign, just like you probably don't remember learning how to talk. I picked it up because they were my parents. They also made sure they exposed us to people who could hear and people who spoke. And so I just picked up ASL and English and here I am. That's so cool to think about because I know like, I feel like a lot of people who know sign language don't have that background. They just take classes or, you know, educate themselves in some way. So I think it's cool that you learned it organically. Another question I get asked is uh, like a lot of people think sign language is universal and in other countries, but it's not, they, yeah. you know, it's, that's why it's called it's ASL, American, American Sign Language. American Sign Language. Right, yeah. right. So that's a, another misunderstanding people have. Now, when it comes to the silence between us, what were your thoughts? 
I initially felt a connection to it because of my background. Um, it's also a very well-written piece with very well-developed characters. And I could understand the character Kathleen, but at the same time, I think it helps people understand the predicament that the mom, Julia, is in and the difficult decision that she made. Mm -hmm. And I think the piece helps people understand maybe what led her to that decision, but then you also see Kathleen's perspective as she gets older and wanting to learn sign language, so. Yeah, for sure, I think it was like, overall just extremely well written and um lisa brought up a point earlier that you know it's it's a fiction a fiction piece but but it's not which i think is a great point because a lot of people you know including you can relate to the story so right i agree the reality is that most deaf babies are born to hearing parents who likely don't know anything about american sign language or deafness or deaf culture and just like Julia in the story, they're trying to figure it out. It's a very heartfelt story with an important message, and I was drawn to it immediately. All right, so next up, uh, we're going to hear a poem by Mary Wemple. It's titled Handicap, and we really think the poem speaks for itself. It is shorter, so I'll play it a couple times for you guys, but we hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. Use the word as they do in horse racing. It's the weight added to the one who is stronger than all the others. Use the word as they do in horse racing. It's the weight added to the one who is stronger than all the others. All right. And to finish up our sampling of works, we'll be hearing a poem by Levi J. Miracle titled Poetry in Its Naked Form. This is why I'm dying to be heard to be memorable. I handwrite poetry post-it notes and stick them to different parts of my body, haikus to my legs, sonnets to my arms, and a ballad to my torso. I stick an elegy to my forehead, an epigram to my lips, and a limerick to my tongue. The contrast of what is and what will never be is beginning to piss me off. This is why I'm dying. I lie here, naked, just my words on top of me, because when I go, I will go on my own terms. I will go smothered in my own words, covered in poetic form. I confirm, my body is giving out, but I'm not giving up, rather, I'm giving in. Today may not be the day I die, but when I do, I will die with poetry next to me. I'm okay with death, but what I'm not okay with is dying without beauty, dying without remembrance. My life it may confine me, but these words may help define me. This is why I'm dying. Wow. I just think that's a super powerful poem overall. And um, for me, it really just speaks to the power that words have. Oh, well said, Max. Um, yeah, for me, there is just so much strength in that poem. 
um, which is in large part what this issue is about. Um, so yeah, well done. Yeah. Definitely well done. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us to the end of episode two. We do want to hear your guys' feedback. What what do you guys like to hear? What would you like to hear in future episodes of Kaleidoscope? I do believe we have a survey put together to send out to you. And, you know, feel free to comment on here as well. What you'd like to hear, we'll be looking at, you know, monitoring the podcast. So I'd love to hear. We'd love to hear what you guys have to say and what you think of the podcast. So, and keeping in mind that Max and I are not professionals at this, we are um, just trying to wade our way through. And I think we're getting a little better. I hope so anyway. I think so too. So. I think so too. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to listen, read, share. Submit, sponsor, and support at kaleidoscopeonline.org. Thanks for listening. And once again, today's podcast was brought to you by PNC, supporting early education, racial and social justice, and economic development through programming within the communities we serve.